You're listening to the Maritime Gardening Podcast, episode 87, brought to you by Vessi Seeds and Safer's Gardening Products. Well, folks, today we've got a real treat from you. We've got Stefan Sabkawiak from uh, many people, many of my viewers may recognize him or recognize the name or recognize the name of the documentary, educational documentary uh, that he was in called uh, The Permaculture Orchard Beyond uh, Organic and uh, he's also the owner of co-owner of Miracle Farms in uh, Montargis, Quebec. Uh, he's also been in a very recent film called, I'm going to try to pronounce this because it's a, it's a French film, La Terre Vue du Coeur, um, which just sort of means uh, the earth seen from the heart. That was 2018. And he also has a, a very excellent YouTube channel that uh, on average, uh, it seems like every one of his videos gets more views than mine. Um, so he's doing, <laughs> so it's good. It must be excellent content. Um, so um, he's a biologist and a, a landscape architect. Um, he owns uh, Miracle Farms, and which is uh, has the accolade of being the largest commercial orchard in, uh, must be the largest commercial permaculture orchard. Permaculture, in yeah, right. Permaculture orchard. Um, so Stefan, uh, how are you doing? And that's largest permaculture orchard in, oh, it's in Canada because there are larger ones. Elsewhere. I'm doing great, Greg. Uh, Thanks a lot. Um, Tell us about yourself. Uh, How did you come to be the owner or co-owner of this orchard? What prompted you to, how did you come to be the owner of a, or co-owner of an orchard, get into that sort of business? And what prompted you to make the documentary? The orchard uh, basically was just an opportunity or more like a need to get out of the office (laughs) Landscape architecture is, I thought, was much more outdoors, and actually it isn't. It's it's a lot of indoors with a few site visits. So in the spring, it's very busy, and I just needed some way of getting out and actually doing what I talk about. So it's really the practice what you preach, and I just needed to be able to experiment a lot more with what I was suggesting to clients, and so... We looked around, found a place, and bought. It was a 4,000-tree apple orchard. So I cut my teeth on apples, literally. And long story, we did a transition to organic. We were organic. Uh, tore out most of that orchard over the in a few years, and then replanted to a permaculture orchard design. So When did you switch to that design? What year? We started to replant in 2007. 2007. So it's been 12 years, the oldest block. And then we've replanted in four separate uh, blocks, basically. And so that's the, the oldest orchard is, is what's kind of featured in the film and in many of the videos, because that's the best example yes. right now. <laughs> yeah. uh, we did put in some of what we're replanting recently and, Anyway, there's a there's quite differences just on the farm and where we try growing things. So, uh, but that that's kind of the short of that adventure of the why. Why is mostly just to. I don't like when you know a lot of comments and and teaching and so on, but I don't like teaching something that I don't know about. And to me, the best way to know about it is to actually go out and do it and try it and fail and try again absolutely otherwise really you're just i call it the telephone effect you know if somebody said something that's wrong 
and somebody learn, hears it and they repeat what's wrong. And pretty soon, because you'd go, hey, 10 people have said that. It's got to be right. Yes. Is it? <laughs> That's one of the guests I have on the show sometimes, uh, Robert Pavlis. He writes a book called Garden Myths. And uh, or he's, he's on his, he just published his second book. And uh, a lot of the garden myths that he speaks to are those sorts of sort of telephone effect. People just, someone yep. tells someone, another person, and it becomes the truth, even though it, it, it may be complete and utter rubbish, has nothing to do with actual reality. Um, and how did you, uh, what prompted you to make the documentary? For those that don't know, uh, Stefan was in a documentary called The Permaculture Orchard, Beyond Organic. Uh, I've seen it. It's really inspiring. If, if you want to watch someone talk about gardening and get inspired to do more with your garden, <laughs> it's very. Uh, I watched. There was a winter where I was homesick, and I I just had a conventional. I'm a backyard gardener. I got about 2,500 square foot garden in my backyard, and it was conventional garden. And I, I just was on YouTube or something like that. And I came across one thing about permaculture and another thing about permaculture. And then I stumbled across your film. And, and I was so inspired uh, by this, that, that, that film. And it was also the Back to Eden Garden film, which, um, again, it's, it's just like you're looking at this guy saying, my God, I want to do that. That looks better than what I'm doing sort of thing. This guy's results are, I don't, I don't think he's lying. I think he's not selling anything. Like both you and Paul Gauchy would be a good example. You, it's clear you're not like trying to sell some book. You're not trying to sell some special sauce. You're just saying, hey, this is what I'm doing. It's working really good. Maybe you want to give it a try. Um, so to me, that's the sort of litmus test for someone being genuine. I changed my whole garden the following spring, and I really and I've had ups and downs and, and a learning curve because it's different than everything you've been taught, but it just gets uh, better and better every year. So how did you come to be – you went from being a guy running an orchard trying to get that going to being a guy who's in a film? <laughs> That a lot of people have seen. Yeah, the film really just came out because of the attention we were starting to get. And I, it was to me, it was a way to save a lot of time answering questions. Yeah. Because uh, like I no longer answer most people's emails because it's just overwhelming the number of questions you get. So I thought, you know what, this is getting out of control. I've got to do something that basically saves me time, but will also save people a lot of time. Because yeah. it's like, why repeat answering the same question five times when I can, I'll let me just do it in a way that people can see it, you know, watch. And I, when people call, I say, have you seen the film? Uh, no. Well, I said, just start there. You know, <laughs> that will answer so many questions. That's why we did the film was to answer the questions and, and as you say, you see it and you go, wow, there's more questions that arise, obviously, but it's such a, it was really meant to be, look, if you can't get started with this, you're not interested in getting started. That's all there is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in terms of, you, you mentioned that you transformed, you started off trying to have an organic orchard and then you switched to a permaculture. What happened there? Why did you make that change? And, and maybe in the process of doing that, maybe you could explain um, how you define organic model and how you would define the permaculture. That's a big question, yeah. but yeah. Well, let me just say, you could have an organic permaculture orchard. Permaculture is almost organic by, by, de it, by default. Well, it, certainly you can have, like we had, it was an organic, certified organic apple orchard. Uh, that the reason I switched was because I really saw the how that is limited. It's to me the biggest shortcomings was 
I took what was and we bought a conventional orchard. We transitioned it. And so we inherited all the, basically, <laughs> all of the, the problems of a monoculture orchard. Okay. I mean, it was, so I, I say now, look, if and Bill Mollison used to say that, and I, I really agree. He says, if you've had the misfortune of inheriting an organ or a, a monoculture orchard, <laughs> I thought, yeah, it's a misfortune in that, you know, you don't want to tear it out. You probably won't tear it out, but you're going to stay with all of the problems attached to a monoculture orchard. And for me, it, the, the big kicker was a caterpillar. Caterpillar. We had, yeah, we had, you have tent caterpillars in the East as oh, yeah, well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And tent caterpillars for us was, it was the worst pest. There was nothing worse than that. When we had tent caterpillars, we had one year, I, I did a, a quick count and we had a thousand nests in the trees. Damn. Well, when you figure each nest is about 250 caterpillars, I realized, wow. And most of them were out of reach. So I would have to go up and down a ladder because for me, the idea of spraying them was not an option. Even though it was organic, I could have sprayed BT or I could have sprayed something. I thought, no, I don't want to be, you know, I didn't get into organics just to change one spray for another, which to me, often organic is a substitute. And that uh, one of my old professors, Stuart Hill, uh, used to say organic is a substitution model. And and that's really the best definition is all you're doing is you're substituting conventional products or you're substituting using organically certifiable products instead of using the uh, synthetic chemical version. Yeah, you're you're finding something that's it's a little more, you know, benign, you know, sort of thing, but you still have to pay for that thing. And you got you got the inputs and you're you're sort of you're still beholden to. you know, procuring the inputs as opposed to setting up. A, I mean, I'm I'm I'm, I'm leading you in, but <laughs> setting up yeah. a system that sort of takes care of itself. Exactly. So yeah. that's the definition then of permaculture is basically you're designing the system to solve the problems right from the start. Yes. And that's the big difference. Why have to deal with them after if you can solve them by the very design that you set it up? And the caterpillar was really the best example because we went from it being the worst pest. And I just was, uh, was this morning or yesterday morning, uh, we were going through the orchard. And at one point, oh, look at this. We took some video of uh, caterpillars. It was a different species, and, uh, but also like hundreds of them. And I was explaining to uh, the girl who's helping me I said, uh, we don't remove them. We don't even take the branch off that they're on. I said, the key is we leave them here because basically the predators need some food to stay alive. And the whole goal of the orchard is we want to maintain a minimum pest to to maintain a minimum of predators at all times. So with the diversity, so planting the orchard, no longer monoculture, I mean, the idea is no two apple trees touch, and we have a system we put in that's called trios. So we put in two fruit trees and a nitrogen-fixing tree yep. and repeat that pattern. So mm-hmm. some areas we have 
a nut tree and a fruit tree and then a nitrogen fixer or some areas we have just two fruit trees and then a nitrogen fixer and so on. So the, the way we set up the orchard from the start is so different from what I had before. And I can only say it because I've lived it. <laughs> I mean, we had thousands of trees in an organic orchard. So I've seen that, but I also saw how that wasn't, to me, that wasn't the answer. It was like, this won't work. This is terrible. This isn't an ecosystem. And I tried everything, uh, everything I could think of. We put in hundreds of nest boxes over the years. Now we're up to 300. But even when it was an organic orchard, we put up nest boxes, we grazed sheep, we had turkeys, we had chickens. I tried to diversify it. But the problem is you still have, I mean, I had 110 trees in a row and I had 30 some odd rows. And when the, when the uh, insects would start on one, there was nothing stopping them. They could just march from one tree to the other. And I thought, there's nowhere in nature that you have that. I mean, you'll have a maple oak forest or you'll have a, you know, pine oak forest. You'll have, there's always a mix of species. So this idea of having just apple trees or just pear trees or whatever species you're in, in your area, uh, it, there's nowhere in nature that it exists. It's pretty rare. And, you might, you might get a, a, a poplar stand or a, a stand of a pine sometimes, but that's usually just because the soil is with the pine, the soil is so acidic, nothing else will grow there. And, uh, and with poplar because they they colonize, um, but right. then there's other things growing all over the place. I mean, yeah, you're right. It's it's not like especially, um, and it would be very difficult for a for a for a farmer to say, hey, why don't you plant a, a locust tree? And with your apples, they'd be like, well, what? I could be growing apples and making more money out of that space. And yeah, uh, it would be. Well, I did that too. Yeah. Uh, when I looked at Mollison's model, he was saying, put a nitrogen fixer. And then, so you have nitrogen fixer one, and then you have a fruit tree, and then you put a nitrogen fixer and a fruit tree. And I thought, maybe in Australia where he is, but I said, our land price is about uh, $25,000 per hectare right now. And I thought, nah, no, I'm not wasting a half of the space for nitrogen fixers, which in our climate don't produce any crop or any fruit that we could sell. Yeah. So I thought, no, and then that's where I developed the idea of trios, which is basically stretching his idea to say, what about if we only have on one side of the fruit tree have the nitrogen fixer? So that by having three, so you have nitrogen, fruit, fruit, and then you have nitrogen. So each fruit tree has a nitrogen fixer beside it. Right. And what, how do you think that uh, affects, I mean, we had a couple of questions about pests as we go along here, but how do you think yeah. that, that, that is mitigating the, uh, is it, is it, is it because um, the predators like to uh, like the habitat that the nitrogen fixing tree provides, or is it just the nitrogen fixing tree makes the, the fruit trees healthier or, or what, what, what is going on there? For the predators, it's a little more complex than that. I mean, I've, I've watched the whole lot of them and, each one has a specific thing that they need. If you know what you, they need, then make sure you add that. Uh, but basically, the nitrogen-fixing plants are highly attractive. They're basically like a, a refuge where the predators can live. And, and I, I'm watching the birds nowadays. 
I'm always watching the birds, but right now they're really in the nitrogen fixing trees because that's where money of the insects are. Oh, uh, I see. So it's basically a place and, and I'd say the biggest difference is having the uh, trios and each fruit tree of a kind. So let's say you're talking an apple tree and then the next apple tree is only three trees away. Right. So that one tree is kind of an island. You no longer have a way for that pest to go from that one to the next tree. And that island uh, situation I've seen time and again where you'll get one tree affected, but the third tree, which is again, let's say in the case of apple, it's not affected. So those pests don't transfer and especially don't want to go through that nitrogen fixing tree because oh, that's a totally different thing. It's such a rough neighborhood. Well, it's it's totally different uh, family. It's no longer because all our fruit trees, apple, pear, plum, cherry, apricot, any of your the fruit trees we grow in Canada are all rosaceae. So they're right. all the rose family. So some of them transfer the same pests, not all of them. In fact, most don't, but they will share some of the same pests. Right. But then the nitrogen fixer, there's nothing there in any way that is uh, beneficial. So the the pests kind of, it's like they land there and then they realize, oh, I don't want to go there. Right. So, I mean, you're, you're gardening on a fairly large scale, but a good portion, I would say the, the vast majority of the people that listen to my podcast are home gardeners. They got some uh, on, on some scale, they've got a backyard garden. Why should the home gardener be interested in permaculture? Because one, it's less work. <laughs> yes. Uh, two, even when you're at work, your gardening is being done for you, yes. which you, you, that, that's really important. Uh, and it, it really, it's just common sense. I, I, my favorite definition is permaculture is applied common sense. Like it's just, it works. It makes sense. If you're doing something in your garden and you go, you know, that really works well, chances are there's a few principles of permaculture that have kicked in, and that's why it's working well. Yes. If you're doing something and you go, geez, this isn't working at all, there's chances are there's, there's not many, if any, principles that are taking place. I know. I can, I can speak to... Um, so in my garden, my, the first year I claimed it was just a wild space, and I claimed the space, and I got things growing. I had an incredible yield that year. Um, the next year was uh, 2015, which was the worst winter we've had in years, and I had the worst garden ever had in my life. Um, the following year, uh, I had uh, all these pests show up that I'd never had before. I had um, flea beetles, and these were attacking my coal crops. Uh, flea beetle, uh, the small white fly, like a you know cabbage uh, a cabbage moth or a caterpillar. This makes this t perfectly camouflaged green caterpillar. Little, little white butterfly that lays the eggs. Um, and snails and slugs like I'd never seen before, like three, four different kinds of slugs and snails everywhere. And, uh, you know, permaculturists would say, well, yeah, you you got this proliferation. You're, you're putting all this mulch down, so it's created this habitat that all these things like. And, but, you know, the, the, the uh, predators are going to show up. And, of course, that year they didn't. <laughs> they show up when they're, you know, at some point in time. And it made perfect sense to me. And I know a lot of people, and we're going to move to this topic next, but a lot of people will 
try something and it doesn't work right away and they think, well, that must be rubbish, it might, you know, but everything about it made sense. If there's a proliferation of food, then there's going to have to, it's like if the rabbit population explodes, I live about on a forest here and there's cycles between rabbits and coyotes. If the rabbit population grows, the coyote population grows and, and so on and so forth. Um, so, I mean, I used uh, a bit of slug bait and a bit of uh, BTK and some things like that just, just so I could get a yield. But I always, almost like you're saying, where I, I didn't eradicate the pest. I, I basically would only start using stuff when the whole crop was at risk. And then I would back off as soon as it was slightly under control. So I still have some of these things persisting in the garden because I wanted the pest to show up. This year seems to be the first year. I still haven't used any BTK yet this year. I saw one white fly um, in uh, some point in uh, July. And then I was out of my garden and I made a video about this just a couple weeks ago. And I was just sitting down, taking a, taking a break, having a beer actually. And I noticed a, a wasp going back and forth to these broccoli plants. And I noticed it was carrying something every time it left. And I went over and took a look and there was uh, those little caterpillars, the, the white fly or a small white caterpillar, caterpillar uh, larvae. And they were juvenile. They weren't fully grown caterpillars. And it was going and finding them and taking them. I, I, watched, I spent about half an hour watching that thing. It was inspecting every inch of that plant. And I thought, my goodness, it's, it's actually starting to happen here. And, and this thing's because people will say when, when you when you go on a lot of websites, they'll say, just pick them off. I'm like, I can't go around picking all these things off. But if I have an army of these wasps picking them off, they're going to do a better job than me. I mean, they can hear them. They can. You know, they're basically bred for. I mean, they, they you know, like, that's what they do. Right. They find stuff and they kill it and they kill things that I want killed. So, you know, yeah, as, as you were saying, the gardening takes place while you're at, at work. Uh, everything yeah. takes place for you. So Yeah, we're, we're going to have to do a video on wasps because to me, wasps are the greatest predator, insect predator in your garden. And many people, the, just the idea of wasp, they hate it. Uh, but there's a few things you need to know about wasps to, to really cohabit with them properly. I mean, I've been next to wasp nests that were the size bigger than basketballs and I can like it's right here and I can stand there and there's 10,000 wasps in the nest like this but as long as you don't get in the way of their I call it their their runway it's like a plane coming in you if you put a if you drive your car on the runway before a plane's coming boy that security will be at you in seconds right well, the wasps are there faster than security. I mean, you got three seconds and they're going to move you for sure. But you can be right beside it, literally. I mean, I, I stand there and I watch what they're bringing and I see a bunch of them right outside the hole. And nobody's, nobody's affected. And like They're not bothering me and I'm not bothering them. They're right there guarding, but they're only guarding the, the, the runway. Right. And if you know that and, and respect it, and especially in your garden, if you know where they're flying, and it doesn't take long, just once you know there's a nest, watch where they're coming and going. And put yourself a couple of stakes so you say, just don't walk ah, in front. Right. And as long as you don't walk right there in front, you won't get stung. You can have them there all summer. I know in my yard, I've been stung in my yard just because I didn't know there was a nest there. Right. But after I've been stung, I know there's a nest. I don't walk right in front. 
right. and I'm fine. I'm, I could have them in the yard, and they're, as you say, they are what you did. I wish everybody did once in their once in the season, just watching a wasp hunt, and you'll think, "Oh my God, this thing is." It's I call it like they're the equivalent of the wolves. Right. Some yes. of them they don't really hunt in packs, but they are as ferocious as any wolf is. Well, it's, I mean, it's, I, I've done videos talking about this uh, permaculture principle, and I really don't talk any, about anything other than it, that the, the observe and interact. Yeah. Um, it's really, if you do that, you could probably drop the, <laughs> that's the most, you know, you apply everything you know, but just be, be passive enough to just notice what's going on. And, and uh, you'll find yourself learning things about, you know, like, a, I didn't know that wasps killed those things. I knew something killed them. I always thought, you know, I have a lot of birds in my garden. This year I had a robin um, make a nest. I didn't film it because I would have had to put the camera within about a foot of the nest and I didn't want to upset uh, the situation. But three three robin eggs became three robins and now they're gone. Um, and you wonder how many snails and things they pulled out of my garden, you know. Uh, they were in there all the time. Like every time I went in my garden, there was a robin in the garden. And even still, it's the case. And actually now there's about three or four robins in my garden every time I'm in there. Uh, so I don't know what they're doing in there. And I'm, I'm hoping they're eating snails and slugs. <laughs> and, because those are the, th they're, I think they're probably easier to get at than worms because they're above, you know, like a certain time of the day. They're, they're, even during the day, they're, they're on the lower leaves of things, right? Um, Let me just go back, Greg, to something you'd mentioned about, it, you know, the time scale. You started in 2015 and it was really last year, things really hummed. Inorganic, if you do a transition like I did, it, they consider it takes three years to transition to certifiable organic. Hmm. And there is a reason for that because your life systems, your all soil. your support systems takes three years pretty well to get up to speed. Right. And so you saw that in the sense of, yeah, you're so uh, I've seen many people think, oh, yeah, I'm going to get into organic because it pays more. And after the second year, they quit because that first year is absolutely the hardest. Your system is still getting off the drugs. Right. And so it's, it, there's nothing really helping you. Uh, your second year gets tougher almost in some cases because you'll have some pests which now have built up and you really can get hammered. Third is your first kind of inkling that some things may start to work, but it's only in your fourth year that you really have, seems like you've, you've passed the worst of it. Right. And so that's when you take over a yard. Anyway, the, I don't know if you've ever talked about compost tea, but aerated compost tea is probably the best way to shorten that three years to in as little as three, three months. If you use it once a week for two months, mm -hmm. uh, you will get the life in your soil back up to a level that is equivalent. And this is uh, research has been done in California with uh, methyl bromide strawberries. And they found that in three months, they got to the level of a three year organic transition which is huge when you figure that, wow, you could take three years or you could take three months. When you say uh, aerated compost, do you mean it's sprayed through the air? What no, that, it's, uh, it's while you're making the tea, it's not just uh, a steeped compost in water. It's compost, water, and air. So you, 
the simplest. We started with just the little aquarium bubbler and we put it in a five gallon bucket. And you could do that if for your backyard, absolutely. So put a, a couple of cups of compost in a bucket of water, ideally rainwater yeah. or water that's had the chlorine blown off of it properly. Yeah. And then put that bubbler in the bottom. And as soon as you put the compost in, it has to be bubbling and you leave it bubble for 24 hours. And after 24 hours, your compost tea should be ready. Now there's a whole, you can get into details of it, but that's the gist of using aerated compost tea. And it can do wonders in terms of most people don't have enough compost. Right. And so it's a way of putting the life that's in the compost everywhere in your soil. I see. Yeah. Like a kickstart and just. Exactly. Yeah, it's an inoculation of all the, the living systems I see. for your soil. Yeah. Especially yeah, if the soil had just been hammered with uh, pesticides and tilled and tilled and tilled and all right. that sort of stuff year after year after year. Why do you think, um, and this is something I come across a lot because people will see my garden and it, it doesn't matter what the results I get. I could have tomato plants 30 feet high. Um, people would see the mulch and say, oh, doesn't that cause slugs and snails? And the answer is, uh, yeah, but then they cause snakes and other things, and it, eventually it works itself out. But why do you think people are so reluctant to embrace permaculture? I mean, almost like people have to, I mean, I've, I've done talks at, at gardening clubs, and people st still extraordinarily skeptical. You show them pictures. Um, if someone goes in your garden, then they're, it seems like if they're actually there, they're like, okay, this is real. Um, but why do you think people are just so reluctant to embrace it? you got a backyard gardener, they're doing stuff the way their parents taught them or the way they think they should or the way the garden center at the hardware store says to do it. Um, and you have someone saying, you know, you could do way less work. <laughs> and they're like, oh, I don't think that'll work. And they just, why, why do you think people are so reluctant? Well, I think we tend to fall back on what we're familiar with. So if you say you do it in a different way, follow some of these principles and it's putting you out of your comfort zone. I, I know for me, it's not a problem. If you tell me a new technique, like when I first learned about aerated compost tea, I'm all in. Why? <laughs> because I've always been, I would say, on the leading edge of I'm comfortable with trying things that absolutely make no sense. So that's me. But if you're in kind of the, the middle of the road, like you'll wait till three gardeners in your neighborhood have done something for three years before you even consider doing it. Yes. And, and so that's kind of the psychology of it. You have to know where you are. I've been doing, I've given talks at garden centers and, and uh, garden clubs for 25 years. And I can say, Greg, it's having done that and having gone back to some places for 10 years, I've seen the changes happening. And it doesn't happen overnight. It yeah. didn't happen. But I have seen the, the consciousness of gardeners on average. It takes time. I'd say it takes a generation. But people are changing their approach. Like when I started... Uh, some of the things I would propose that to me seemed obvious, I realized, oh, my God, everybody's looking at me like, are you crazy? Yeah. <laughs> like, who's going to do this? And so now if I propose that, the odd person who would say that keeps it to themselves because they realize, wow, I'm in the minority now. Right. And so 
the ideas are getting out there. For example, uh, using pesticides on lawn. Well, Quebec has been the first in North America to say, no, we're banning cosmetic use of pesticides on lawn. Mm. And for a few years, one of my biggest talks was ecological maintenance or ecological lawn care because people needed to know, give me some solutions now that I can't use my herbicide on uh, dandelions and so on. So we did a video lately on dandelions and it, I, it saw, hits I, I, I haven't watched that one. I saw it's like what dandelions can tell you or there's something right. like that, right? Yeah, yeah they're great it. indicator species. And, and most things are. You were saying slugs and, you know, all of these insects and weeds that we consider weeds are really great indicators. And, I, I you know, this isn't my ideas. I learned these by really studying uh, Sir Albert Howard, who did his work in the early 1900s. Hmm. And the guy was like, if you read his things, you'll you'll see that he's he was brilliant. I mean, he could take any climate. He did tropics, subtropics, temperate, desert areas. He took every kind of crop, and he was basically the the go-to problem solver for the British Commonwealth because all of their colonies would grow. He'll hear they're growing cotton, and cotton is getting this disease. Go figure out why they're getting this disease and solve it. And he would go in case by case by case. India is having a problem. Oh, Jamaica with their sugar cane is having a problem and so on and so on. And he would go and solve them. And his take home after all of these is, was really his approach. As he said, pests and disease are not the problem. We should regard them as our professors. Hmm. And that it's, they're sent free by Mother Nature to get our house in order. So that, that's kind of... It took me five years to digest that sentence because it's not a it's it's not the the usual approach. You, we don't look at pests and disease as they're not a problem. We look at them. How can I get rid of that? What can I put on? Yes, yes, yes. But the more you are willing to say, okay, why do I have this? What are they trying to show me? What are they indicating? And when you get that, you realize, hey. This is this is really quite easy. I don't know the solutions for all because I don't have all the those pests. But I've had dandelion. Like if you see the video, I show a picture in there what the farm looked like when we bought it the first year. Okay. And if you bent down, Greg, it, you did not see green. You saw yellow. It was it was just a solid carpet under the fruit trees of yellow. The so dandelions are the only thing that could grow there. <laughs> It was unbelievable. I'd right. never seen so many dandelions. And so by then I'd already been in this. I, I'd already been looking at these and I realized, wow, there, there is a problem here. And right. it made a lot of sense because when you use chemical or synthetic fertilizers, they're acidulating. So they acidify the soil and your easy to leach minerals will be leached out or at least leached to deeper down in the soil. And the easiest one is calcium. And dandelion are a great indicator of a lack of calcium. So it doesn't mean your soil has no calcium anywhere. It just has it too deep for the grass to get to. Mm, right, right, and right. I mean, everybody's seen what a dandelion root can be. It's able to go halfway to China. <laughs> so that dandelion root is really just a nutrient pump or a mineral pump. And the most important mineral that is lacking for the grass to really grow thick and lush and outcompete the dandelion is calcium. 
So once you get that calcium back up with the pump of the dandelion and you leave it, because that's the biggest problem and people commented so much on that video. I, I've been tearing out these dandelion for years. Yeah, but if you just chop them and leave them, that calcium will be back on the soil surface where the dandelion is trying to do the job. And so it, it, it makes so much sense when you read Sir Albert Howard, it's just, it'll blow your mind how he understands problems in a totally different way. And it's taken me, it took me five years to accept that with first of all, the caterpillar. And when you said, you know, why did I kind of tear out the orchard? One was I, the caterpillar told me plainly that the problem is not the caterpillar. It's that you make it too appealing to them and they just take advantage of it. Hmm. So I needed some way to break up that monoculture. And that's where the idea of permaculture and the polyculture and mixing. And, and that totally solved the problem. I've never had to spray. I've, I never remove nests. And yet with thousands of trees, I don't have any, I mean, I have caterpillars right now. This year is a big caterpillar year, but they start, they don't even get to the first branch and they're gone. Like they just disappear. I looked at one this morning that I've been following in a pear tree and I was looking where all the pear, where all the caterpillars gone. They were there yesterday and today they're gone. Like everything, they were progressing and then all of a sudden stop. There's no more caterpillars. I looked all over none they so they're all killed by something in in if they're gone usually it's either birds or the big wasps which actually just catch them and take them back to their nest right. if they're there and they're mummified then it's the the uh, parasitic wasps which actually sting them mm. lay an egg and then that eats the caterpillar from the inside like a good horror movie oh yeah <laughs> what um the, 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 I mean, like you always think of a wasp like a bee and they need nectar and they gather nectar. Is it one gender gathers the nectar and the other gender does all the killing? Or how does that, why are they no. killing my caterpillars? <laughs> well, it, it really comes down and, and it's not a question of gender because uh, just like bees, the uh, wasps, it's all females and bees the same it's all i mean there there are males but the males are not doing they're not doing any of the hunting it's not like a parental thing hmm. the females are the ones that are feeding the young and doing everything and the males are just there to mate uh but <laughs> <laughs> tough life good deal. <laughs> uh so it yeah anyway wasps are they're an incredible creature i mean it's it's just the way they they hunt uh it's worth watching yes i've actually written down the name sir albert howard i'm gonna i've not heard this before talking to you so i definitely i got a new uh new pet project of something to read about yeah if you want to write down the book is the the soil and health the soil and health yeah and another one is an agricultural testament okay those two books are uh kind of follow up on each other but uh, great 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 like they're considered classics of organic agriculture and they they really are i was going to ask you like when you were you're a landscape architect did you take did you, did you study that in uh like an academic setting 
Yeah, I did a master's in landscape architecture at the okay. University of Guelph. That's what the MLA stands for. So right. not member of legislative assembly. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> if that was the case, it'd be all lies. Um, yeah. So uh, what, uh, when you were studying that, did you learn anything there about permaculture? No, no. Actually, it was before I, I graduated in uh, 1990. Uh, so I had discovered <laughs> permaculture in 1990 after I graduated. Uh, I went to, I loved uh, one of the libraries that uh, Stuart Hill, Dr. Hill had set up at McGill called the Ecological Agriculture Projects. And I was there just because it's the best library or was the best library for all things alternative in the sense of growing and he had that book there and I ordered it right away and I, for three weeks I just that's all I studied was that book because to me it was kind of coming home right. where I knew from do I did a master's in, in wildlife uh, behavior even and so the wildlife I had that the ecosystem thinking ecology and so on and then landscape architecture was the design so I realized I had the the really basics that I needed for permaculture. The only thing I didn't have was the, uh, the basically the principles. Right. And the principles, that was the part that just tied everything together. And then it all made sense of looking through, oh, okay, if you think of it in that way, then yeah, that, so it, it was, to me, it was really like, oh, finally 10 years of schooling uh, in university has, you know, has a, a framework that makes sense. Now I know how I can apply all this stuff. Well, and I would say like watching your film and I don't know you personally, but like I, in a way you're almost like a Canadian Jeff Lawton in the sense that if you, for those that have watched uh, Jeff Lawton on YouTube, um, he really, he comes off like a guru. <laughs> I mean, just the way he speaks and also the way they present him. It's almost like he levitates down to the ground and uh, for me, it's a it's a I don't want to trash the guy and, you know, very inspiring guy to listen to. But it's a bit much um, watching your documentary. It seemed like, OK, now there's a guy I can talk to about growing stuff. It, it just a little more down to earth, a uh, little less uh, uh, putting on airs and just, OK, let's let's talk about growing some stuff and how to do it using permaculture. Uh, that's what I really like about your approach. Um, in my videos, I often show people my failures and things that I've got wrong, and I don't keep that out. Um, and uh, I know you've had some setbacks in your orchard. Um, so uh, can you share some of those things with us and just uh, give us your uh, insights on, on those experiences? Yeah. Uh, my education's kind of up to $60,000 in mistakes now. <laughs> so I've kind of got a really good graduate degree in education uh, just in the School of Hard Knocks. That's about what an undergraduate and a graduate... Uh... Yeah, yeah it's, it's a good education. Uh, so, but I mean, like I tell people today, if you're starting, look, sit down. It's, winter's coming. Sit down this winter and do two, three weeks of intense study. And you really don't, don't give me any BS about, oh, I, I can't. Look, you have every tool at your disposal now. You had the best teachers in the world, not even like in your area, in the world. You can look up 
you're interested in some subject, go ahead. For free. They're there. They're for free. They're available. I, I so found I say, uh, what's it called? Permaculture 2. I, I just did a Google on it yeah. and there's a PDF that you can download for nothing off the internet. Yeah. yeah they read the put, whole darn thing. They put uh, permaculture one and two is now, uh, they put it out in the public domain. And you can see lectures of, uh, you know, Bill Mollison on YouTube. You can see lectures right. of all these guys. I mean, it's all out there. Um, yeah, I wish, I, I mean, and I, I planted and, and I redid basically the orchard before uh, I knew about YouTube. And, but YouTube is, that's one of the reasons that I started the channel too, because I realized this is incredible. Like if you put it out there, it's out there and people can, like now if I have a question, I'll say, just go see my video on dandelion or just, you know, so it's yes. so easy because go see it, you know, start there. It'll take you 10 minutes or 15 minutes, whatever. Uh, so you have great tools at your disposal. Uh, reading a book, I, I compare it to, you know, it's how many, how many ways are you going to get your education? If you read, you'll only retain about 10% based on the research. But if you watch and listen, you'll get a lot more. So videos is a better medium to catch more than just reading yes i find i i do all I, I do read i mean i have different guests on the show so i have to read their books uh, and i also read just things i'm interested in but i do all of that reading on the toilet <laughs> for things like that uh, because it's almost like studying you, you reread and you, you read little doses every day sort of thing uh, and then if, if, if i have the flu or i've got a cold or i'm homesick for the day i i'll uh, binge watch i have a list of like youtube channels and and uh, lectures and things like that and a meaning to listen to so when i'm sort of stuck i mean if, if i can be outside i'm outside and i'm just learning through trial and error that's my favorite way to learn just 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 trying things and doing experiments and coming up with crazy ideas and seeing what happens and then making notes of what went wrong and what went right so, yeah, and i think it's important every year to to write down like i like to write down everything that went wrong and instead of just saying maybe that, I think a lot of people are inclined to think, I tried something new and it didn't work. It can't work. Instead of writing down what went wrong and thinking about it and saying, okay, maybe right. I just did one little, I need a little change. I need it. Like one, my big thing is, is, is direct seeding things outdoors. So I didn't have any transplants inside. Um, the only thing I had to buy transplants for this year were uh, peppers. Everything was direct seeded outside under like little plastic. I create microclimates and direct seed. And as long as there's enough sun, it can get warm enough in there. I got tomatoes three feet high right now. They were direct seeded outside. Um, and yeah. we still, we were still getting frost in May. Um, so, but even the peppers, I mean, this is my like third year trying to grow them. I actually had two germinate the, and those ones have actually caught up to the transplants at this point in the year. Um, but I still, I, I've been making notes of why I think it went wrong. When the idea is fresh and what to do next year, um, you know, I, I still haven't given up the, the persistence and, the, and it's, it's not stubbornness. It's curiosity and and playfulness and just, you know, trying and trying and trying. And um, I mean, I guess it is kind of stubbornness, but um, <laughs> it's a kind of stubbornness. But it's it's more like you're you're not bothered by the failure. You're just like, God, it's got to be almost like you think of like all the analogy I like to think of is the airplane. All these stupid designs of the air, you know, the guy with the wings and he falls off the thing and dies. And then, 
uh, you know, all the, it's iterative, incremental, incremental, different people trying. And even the first airplane that flew, it was a lousy airplane. You would never want to get in that airplane. It's only a couple feet off the ground. And a lot of people would say, see, it's, it, this is a bad idea. And there was some guy saw that and say, ah, I think a little change needs to be a little change here, a little change. Here, let's try that out. And then some other guy saw that. And eventually you've got, you know, jets and all these cool things. Right. Uh, it's yeah. the same thing as, as long as you've got some some idea of oh, what if I change this a little bit? What if I change that a little bit? I love that process, especially when you see it starting to work. Um, hopefully you figure it all out before you're too old to do anything. Right? Well, <laughs> if I could yeah. only live for another 50, 60, 70 years, I, I think I'd have it all figured out. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the challenges is because you're working outdoors, you really can figure you have, what, 40 to 80 seasons. Yes. And so that's not that many experiments. If you could no. do something once a week, then in a year, you'd oh. bet you'd get the equivalent of what you did in a lifetime. Think where you'd be. <laughs> yeah, and that's the other thing. Like a lot of things, you got really you get one chance. You get one. You know, you get if there's a yeah. three week period to get things going, and if it doesn't happen, well, okay, next year I better do something different. Um, so yeah, that's that's the thing about guarding. I think a lot of people um, don't have the patience. It certainly is a personality type. Um, well, let uh, me just give you one, Greg, because you're talking about gardening. Uh, the out of the experiments I've done in a garden and, and sort of, a, I always did try things because again, working with clients in the sense of landscape designs and consulting, I, I didn't want to basically have them try the experiment if I hadn't tried it. So the one thing I had read uh, several things about it, but it was Sir Albert Howard and books about uh, rock dust got me really interested and intrigued because I always wondered why would people live on the side of a volcano? It's the, it's the craziest place in the world to live until I tried it. Right. And so if you try, if you want to try something for a plant and, and the first time that I saw this thing, I, I wanted to try it and a guy was selling a mix of rock dust and compost and the rock dust was basalt rock dust, which is the same rock that is found in volcanoes. So it's basically the equivalent of living on the side of a volcano. So he took the compost and basalt. And I say nowadays to when I do presentations for gardeners, I say, if you have one thing you want to get uh, sold on or try, try this. Because if this doesn't work, then no input you can try will work. Your, your situation, either you have too much uh, shade or you have a water table that's really too close or so on. You have to fix your foundational problems in your yard before your inputs will actually make any change. Yes. But if, you're, if your foundations are solid, you have good drainage, you have plenty of sun, then your input or your soil problems can be solved with an addition of compost and rock dust. So you take about uh, four or five times the amount of compost per volume to one part of rock dust and you mix them together. And I looked around in my yard and I said, what is the one plant? Cause I only had one bag of this. And I thought, what, what's the one plant that would show an effect? And we had this pitiful rose bush. I mean, it was there for 10 years and it had a hard time giving a half a rose a year. Like hmm. that's how much it was caterpillar heaven. Every year the caterpillars just ate this thing 
And so never did anything. And I thought, huh, well, if I'm going to try one, let's try it on the worst plant in the yard. So I put about two inches thick, uh, a foot from the rose bush all around. So two foot ring, imagine. I just mulched that rose bush with that layer all around. So it acted as a mulch out of compost and rock dust. But the idea, and Sir Albert Howard pointed this out, basically you give the tree a bank account or a, or, or a reserve or an indulgence of nutrients that it would need. I did this uh, in April, early April, after the snow had melted, and I thought, okay, well, I'll see what happens. I mm. did nothing else to that rose bush. I didn't prune. It didn't need pruning. It never grew. So I didn't do anything else. And that year, we got 36 roses. There was one leaf that had started to be eaten and then the caterpillar left. Like there was nothing eaten on that rose bush. The second year it gave 30. The fourth year, uh, no, the second, third year it gave 20 roses. And the fourth year it went back to one. Hmm. So I thought, wow, one time application gave me three pretty amazing years. And so... Uh, reading kind of what what's the solution and so on it comes down that that one application had the three critical factors for great gardening uh soil it had in the compost there was lots of organic matter which is the fuel for soil life it's carbon yeah. the second one it has is lots of great minerals because rock dust is minerals in its pure form it's not weathered or anything it's just rock that's been crushed and now it's the same as if the glacier had just left and the third one is soil is life so the compost if it's good compost has good soil uh, good life right. so you put those three ingredients and i i say to people look be careful where you use this because they get excited they think hey this is supposed to work well and people complain because if you use it on your grass don't use it on your grass it's not that it won't grow. It's the opposite. It grows so much that people say, hey, it's one thing to mow your grass once a week, but if I have to mow it twice a week, like, this is crazy. This is ridiculous. I don't want to mow it twice a week. <laughs> and that's how well it actually grows. Like, this thing, be careful where you use it, literally. And the nice thing is you do not over-fertilize. So, for example, your tomato, if you over-fertilize, you're going to get this monster green plant but no fruit. Because the plant will use up the nutrients in providing lush growth, but it's like, it's okay, I'm a tropical plant. I'll fruit in six months. Well, sorry, but in our climate in six months, winter's here, and there's no chance to put fruit on. Right. So you don't <laughs> want to push the plant. You just want it to grow, and it says, okay, time to put fruit out. Yes. So anyway, that's my biggest trick and tip on, for gardeners is to try that. Uh, because once you try it, you'll go, oh, my God, the, you know, all the buying of all kinds of things. And then you don't have to be doing anything to treat for insects because uh, your soil is so in such good condition that the insects can't even touch the plant. It's anyway, people have done it using bricks measurement, which is the sugar measurement. And if you get above, uh, I believe it's a 15 in bricks your plant is virtually toxic to the insects. Like they, they taste it and no, they can't eat this. This is, this is not an unhealthy plant. This is so healthy that insects don't no longer touch it. Hmm. 
I've noticed like for my kale, certainly I mean, when, when the plants are babies, they, they, they're vulnerable. But at this stage in the year, so I haven't used any sort of uh, uh, anything uh, since, I don't know, like some early May sort of thing, right? Uh, my kale are a good example because the kale are the most attacked plant in the garden. And the snails and the slugs only attack the lower leaves that are discolored. Like the lower leaves don't get any sun, yep. so they start to get weak. And that's when they start to get all, all the top leaves are fine, and it's the lower leaves that get attacked. Um, so that m must have something to do with what you're saying. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't use rock dust, but I have the, the gardens are perpetually mulched and the mulches are perpetually breaking down. And there's, you know, there's nutrients, basically mineral, all the things that are in the mulches. And I use different, I, I have no particular mulch I use. I use whatever I can get. Basically what people throw out on the side of the road. <laughs> That's interesting because when you say when you start the plant, so basically when you start it or you first put it out, that plant is rooted in, in really just the surface. So it shows to me that your surface soil isn't as healthy as your deeper soil. That's right. Yeah, well, the surface soil is in contact with the mulch right up until, uh, so it's probably a little bit low in nitrogen, um, you know, and then, uh, yeah, once the roots get deeper, the, you know, the, the right. plants start to get hardier and hardier and hardier. Um, so um, another question I want to, I've got a couple of viewer questions here too, but these are my own questions because um, I'm experiencing this this year. Um, why do trees, I mean, I'm sure there's lots of reasons, but maybe you could give me the top couple of reasons. Why, I'm going to talk about apple trees, but it could be any, any fruit trees. Um, why do trees give no fruits some years? I've got a northern spy. It's got two apples on it. Uh, last year it had lots of apples. This year it's got two. Yeah. Okay. Well, first thing, no fruit some years. Because if they give you no fruit, then it's one, the tree just isn't mature yet. So if it's not old enough to flower, it's not old enough to get fruit. The second one is, does it have a partner? Because I saw uh, one of your questions was, hey, what happens if... Uh, you know, I have one tree and it's supposed to be self-fertile. Well, self-fertile is a nice idea, but in reality, every tree likes to have a partner. Yes. And the partner has to be a different cultivar. So it's different. not, or a different variety, as people say. Uh, it, it can't be the same. So if you have two northern spies, they don't, they're clones. So to them, it's like twins. They just don't mix together. And so that's where... You have to have two of the separate ones. They have to be old enough to be mature. And then what your case is, uh, the this tree didn't does... even give me blossoms this year. Like, right. It's really bizarre. I don't last year. Well, one, one problem I have with that, just so I can give you more context for this one here for some. So I've got a number of different varieties of apples. Um, right. But the northern spy um, typically goes to flower way later than the other ones. It's not timed well. I didn't know anything about that. I just bought it because I. Oh, Northern Spy, that sounds good. I mean, literally, yep. that, that was a level of thought I put into it. Northern, I, oh, I live in Canada, Northern, okay, cool. Um, but it, it tends to uh, come into flower a lot later than the other ones. But last year, it had lots of flowers, and it, it you know, put out some apples. This year, there's hardly any blooms at all. Um, yeah. And it, the tree looks healthy. It's big, and it's, it's my oh, biggest yeah. tree. Well, in that case, what happens is uh, you don't fertilize your trees, I take it. No, I just have a mulch on the soil, basically. Right. So because the trees aren't getting excess uh, nutrients in any way, the year that they put out, and last year you had a whole lot of fruit. So what happens is a tree will always prioritize maturing the fruit that's on it. That's the 
absolutely because it doesn't know is a is a herd of deer going to come in and totally kill it over the winter it doesn't know so it doesn't bank on next year it always prioritizes this year so if it's got a big crop load like you had last year then all the energy goes into ripening that crop load because all it wants to do is make sure it puts out as much seed as possible it doesn't care about the fruit the flesh is <laughs> secondary it's the seed that's all the important seed. the seeds everything because it doesn't yeah, it's adapted. It, there could be an ice age this year. Right. It wants <laughs> it's to survive. And here. its survival mechanism is producing fruit uh, so, seed. So in doing that, it basically ex exhausted itself in a sense. It doesn't put up for next year. That's yes. what it does. It's, there's an excess nutrients. So it doesn't put up the reserves for next year. So basically your buds, because everything you harvest this year is always a result of last year's effort. In in fruit trees, it's always you're reaping what you sowed last year. If you neglected and your, your trees just were not given what they needed last year, mm. then you may not get much this year. You gave them plenty, but what happens is they gave you so much last year that they probably gave you a crop and a half. Ah. So that half is this year's half crop, and it was given last year. So the tree ah. goes, hey, I gave you so much last year. Give me a break. I'm taking. So would would an approach to mitigate that if you have a year and it seems like a particularly high yielding year, especially in my case, maybe uh, putting down a bunch of compost here or something like that in that year to. Yeah. Um, like I'm sure this year that the root systems are growing and developing so the tree will be, you know, more able to gather oh, yeah. stuff for itself. Well, don't forget, it doesn't have a crop load to. So everything it's growing this year is going into producing so the problem is, and I've had this for, since 2012, we have every second year we've had these bumper crop years. Mm. And then the second year, like last year, we had hardly anything. Wow. And so we've been alternating. It's called alternate production because we don't fertilize. And if I fertilized then last year or, or two years ago when we had a lot of crop, it could have produced the crop and put up nutrients for next year. But because I don't fertilize, the tree says, okay, I've just got so much nutrients. I'm going to ripen the fruit I have. But next year, I'm on vacation. Uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. so for me, in a way, now I'm realizing that's not bad because the year there isn't much crop. There isn't, there isn't the workload involved in it. Yes. So I don't mind. But if you're, if you're doing it in your yard, and it actually reduces the pests as well because the pests don't have a reliable crop year to year. Uh. Yeah, and yeah. so when we don't have many fruit, like for you this year, you don't have many fruit, make sure you pick up all the fruit on the ground mm. because those are your pests that are going to come back next year. So if yeah. you pick up those fruit, it's good sanitation. Then next year, you'll have a much better chance of having cleaner fruit without the work needed. Right. So it's really just a question. The tree allocates the energy always prioritizing the fruit and and that's the the case why it didn't give you f much fruit or didn't even flower much this year that's great because i got something to look forward to next year <laughs> just a, a tip on that the year that you're expecting a lot of fruit like this year don't prune your tree hard oh right uh, or, or actually no this next year you're going to get fruit so it's this year last year it's, you could have uh you could have not pruned the tree last year or this spring, but this coming spring, 2020, make sure you prune it quite a lot. 
Okay. Because you want to reduce the number of branches that can have fruit. Right. Because it's already going to have a tendency of having a lot of fruit. Mm -hmm. If you leave a lot of branches, what happens is it'll produce oh. three times more fruit, but they're going to be smaller because it doesn't care. Yeah, so yeah. just prune heavy the year you're expecting a heavy crop. I see. And then it, and maybe it won't. Uh, it well, won't, it'll, uh... it may not alternate then. The year yeah, after it may not exhaust itself or yeah, yeah, right. you, and you're also changing i've often thought i don't know i've never read this anywhere but if you're pruning you're basically changing the ratio of roots to branches uh, you, you know what i mean almost like you're giving it a bigger mouth because uh, right. <laughs> the food gathering part becomes larger relative to the food using part i mean the leaves are food gathering in the sense that they gather sun uh, but anyway, I've, you know, I, I've thought, you know, I've often thought it's, it's very possible that one of the main, there's lots of reasons to prune a tree, but if you're removing branches, then you've basically got more roots. <laughs> and from a ratio point of view, it can't, it can't hurt yeah. to have more roots relative. As to long as you're pruning the tree while it's dormant, though. Yes. And actually, there's a question down here about um, pruning, so I won't, I won't spoil that. Okay. Um, last question of mine is that I have aphids on my trees, on my apple trees, uh, on some of them. Uh, how do you deal with aphids? And I think you even have a video on this. I just haven't gotten around to watching it. Right. Yeah. The aphids is a great, aphids is another excellent indicator. So you really only get aphids when you have excessive growth. Right. And usually the excessive growth is stimulated by excess nitrogen. Hmm. Uh, so to me, aphids are the easiest like pest to eliminate, not immediately, because once you have them, you have them, but to not repeat the same situation that will give you high aphids next year. So the first thing I say is if you've got a lot of aphids, stop fertilizing and you don't fertilize, but you mulch. So the next step is you probably have aphids on excess growth or suckers. And uh, like suckers. if you look, where do you have your aphids? I have aphids this year. I haven't seen aphids in years, but I saw a few this year on branches where I cut, I cut some big suckers that were on branches. I should have just cut that whole branch off, but if there was a branch and then there was a big sucker and I cut off that big sucker, then the growth that happened right from that point, hmm. there are some branches that grew three feet. Well, three feet is too much. And so there were some aphids that showed up, but that's simply... They're trying to slow down the growth. That's basically what they are. They're nature's pump. They're trying to pump down the nutrients so that your plant will slow down so that it'll actually survive the winter. Because if it keeps growing right up into September, uh, it may not be hardened off in time for winter. Right. Yeah, I've got aphids and ants because the ants like the aphids. Okay. Right. Uh, well, so you don't... You don't uh, hit them with insecticidal soap or anything? You just, no, because just... actually they're trying to, they're trying to rebalance that growth or that tree. Uh, so would you prune? Like when you start seeing too many aphids, just just remove that branch or just let let nature even. take its course, just leave it alone. Yeah, let them let them slow the tree down because that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to slow the tree down. I had one story in that video, and it's a great story that illustrates what's going on. I was giving a a course in New Zealand, and there was a, a, a lady came around said the, you were talking about you know aphids and uh, insects not being a problem and she said the, I've got 
I've got four lemon trees because this is New Zealand, so they can grow lemons. She says, I got four lemon trees, but only one of them is infested with aphids. So I right. thought, okay, well, that tree is showing you something or it's indicating there's something there. So I said, well, do you fertilize just that tree? She says, no. Okay. I said, uh, does that tree get runoff from a compost pile nearby? No. Okay. Uh, I said, do you know the history of that spot exactly? Was there a manure pile there or something at one point? She says, no, I've been here for 20 years. Okay. So I'm going through the list and Finally, I said, well, I said, there is something, I don't know what it is, but there is something that is causing that tree to have excess nitrogen. So at that point, her husband's beside her. And he says, dear, yeah, he's right. She looks at him like, what are you talking about? And he says, oh, well, I know this story. Yes, I know. Yeah. Yes, now I remember this. I did watch this video. Okay. okay. Well, that was finish, it. That, finish, finish the story. Yeah. Yeah. So, she, so he says, well, dear, in the morning when I get up, I go and pee. <laughs> under that lemon tree. Yes. So I asked him, I said, okay, well, how often do you go? Oh, he says, at least 300 times a year. Well, I said, there's your problem. Yes. He said, 300 doses of nitrogen and your morning urine is the most concentrated, the strongest. So I said, there's the problem. Your tree is, is showing you that it's had way too much. And a, a fruit tree, if you measure how much nitrogen needed, it's the equivalent of 20 urinations. Right. So right, can right. you imagine you're only going 20 times over the course of the whole season, not 20 times in, in two days. Uh, so if that's all it would need. So that tree was getting, so I said, listen, don't stop because that's a good habit if you want to fertilize your trees. Just but I said, spread, <laughs> spread it around. Think of 20 <laughs> times max. So yeah, that's, that's where, you know, trees and plants and insects are indicating situations we don't always know what and that's what i i find it's kind of like detective work you know you you really just once you understand the principle and you understand let's say the insect what it's trying to do or the weed what it's trying to tell you then it's just looking at the situation and understanding oh yeah that's right that's what's happening here hmm. yeah that's that makes a lot of sense thanks a lot stefan this is wonderful Hey, folks, that ends the first hour. I actually ended up talking to Stefan for two hours. And in the second half of the interview, we get into all the different questions that people asked me to put to him. And he goes into really good detail, very thorough answering of all these questions. We left no stone unturned. So stay tuned for that. We'll have that up in a week or so. Um, until then, uh, enjoy this part of the podcast. Uh, if you uh, are interested in Stefan's uh, various uh, forms of content he has available out there on the cyberspace, I'll have links in the description box if you're on YouTube or in the show notes. If you're on the podcast website, you can look at all that. And of course, there's links to my stuff as well. Uh, there's also links to my sponsors, Vessi Seeds and Safest Gardening Products. If there's something you need that they sell, buy from them, use the coupon codes, and that'll help support the show, convince them a good partner, um, that I'm a good partner for them. Uh, but until next time, if I uh, hope you like this podcast. I hope it was good content for you. If it was, please like, share, subscribe, and all that good stuff. And until next time, get out there, get at it, have fun in your garden, and thanks for listening.